who would have thought that David, the king of Israel, who wrote scripture, who killed Goliath, would ever be capable of multiple murders and what some have called power rape of Bathsheba. You know, you just know that that couldn't happen. Well, actually it did. And David is hardly the only example in scripture of a godly leader with this amazing track record, if you will, of righteous behavior who, for whatever reason, um, fell into abusive behavior and abusive and very destructive behavior. The common historic way of, of understanding the David Bathsheba text, and for years I referred to it as an affair, um, I was wrong. <laughs> I do not say that anymore. Welcome back to Advent Next, a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. It is the month of October, so the theme of the next few broadcasts will be on domestic violence, sexual assault, and the role of the church. Our beliefs and our theology does make a difference when it comes to a person staying silent about their abuse or speaking up and taking steps to move towards safety. Just to give you all a few statistics to help place these conversations in context, one in three women who are victims of homicide, that's one-third of all women who are murdered in the United States, are killed by their intimate partners. The number of American troops in Afghanistan and Iraq who were killed between 2001 and 2012 was 6,500. The number of American women who were murdered by current or ex-male partners during that time was almost 12,000. That's nearly double the amount of casualties lost during war. One in five women will be victims of sexual assault in their lifetime, and half a million are victims of sexual assault in the U.S. every year. So in honor of October as the month of Domestic Violence Awareness Month, I brought in Dr. Steve Tracy, professor of ethics at Phoenix Seminary, to discuss a biblical point of view on sexual and domestic violence and the church's role in helping the healing journey of a survivor. Dr. Tracy is the author of the book, Mending the Soul, Understanding and Healing Abuse. He has spent 15 years as a pastor and over 15 years ministering in the Congo, which, according to the CDC, is rape capital of the world. Dr. Tracy and his wife, Celestia Tracy, both work to provide resources to ministries and churches to help them find healing in Christ. You can find out more about their ministry and resources at mendingthesoul.org. We want to thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to find us at the handle at AdventNext. I'm your host, Kendra Arsenal, and you can find me at the handle at Kendra Arsenal with an X. But this is Advent Next. I think it's important that as leaders, but even as just regular church members, um, that we just have an important uh, and accurate understanding of how God sees abuse and uh, really helping people move towards safety and not using the scriptures as a means to continue to oppress and abuse. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit about sexual abuse and uh, the Me Too movement and its impact upon the church and looking at how we can be um, leaders in that area because it's, it's a very damaging uh, thing that happens to women and even to men, right? And it's something that we need to be vigilant about and figure out ways to really minister to those who are hurting in a way that we are not trying to protect the abuser or um, disbelieve those who are coming out and sharing their stories. So without any further ado, uh, Dr. Tracy, thanks so much for being here today. Oh, it's really my pleasure. 
So could you tell us a little bit, I, I think you have such a fascinating story. You're a professor of ethics, right, uh, at, at Phoenix Seminary. Seminary. Yep. Okay. And uh, you do some really amazing work. You have, you've written a book called Mending the Soul. Um, you did some work in the Congo. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. My academic background is I, I have a PhD in Pauline ethics and spent 15 years as a pastor. I thought I'd be teaching Greek long-term and related topics and, and I love Greek, but uh you know, along the way in pastoral ministry and having a, a wife who spent 20 years doing trauma care as a professional counselor, the Lord just used a variety of experiences, including some things in our own family, uh, to, to really direct me to take my academic and pastoral background and apply it to this topic of abuse. Um, it's just so prevalent. The need is so great. There have not been many resources, particularly resources that are biblically grounded. And so that is, that's really for my wife and I, our life calling. And we started Mending the Soul 17 years ago as a nonprofit to, to create resources for the church um, so that they can address abuse wisely, um, effectively. And yeah, so we're now doing work around the world. Uh, First year in 15 years, I haven't been in Africa. Normally, I spend four to eight weeks in East Africa and uh, trauma zones, particularly the Congo, which has some of the highest uh, violence against women uh, in the world. And I've learned so much from doing that. Just give me a much broader perspective on both the prevalence of misuse of power against those who are vulnerable, particularly women and children, but certainly men can be abused as well. Um, And it's given me some incredible insights into the redemptive power of God to heal, to bring good out of evil, beauty from ashes, and the worst of the worst of the worst. So it gives me a lot of passion to continue to do, do this work. Wow. Tell me a little bit about the the work that you've done in the Congo because I think it's it's pretty interesting. It's one of the highest uh, capitas of of rape and domestic violence in the world. Is that correct? The uh, I think it was the UN Undersecretary a few years ago described Congo as the rape epicenter of the world. Wow. Um, I mean the 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 numbers are just you can't even get your head around uh, the numbers. There's a lot of communities where virtually 100 percent of the women have been sexually assaulted. Wow. Um, a lot of that, Congo has been through a series of civil wars, and there's still a tremendous amount of militia activity in the east where we work. Um, so a lot of it is related to, you know, soldiers, militia, but it's an exceedingly patriarchal culture. It's a beautiful culture. I love Congo, and I love the Congolese. And, and every culture reflects both the image of God, beauty, and corruption by sin, and one of the latter there is is a, a patriarchy that's really malevolent. So um, beating your wife is just, I mean, that's just ex- how it works almost. Uh, and sexual violence, seeing women as property is just woven into the culture. So you've got uh, multiple factors. And then you've got children and now adults who know nothing but war. And so they're just, they're literally habituated to violence. 
So you put all, you stir all that together and, and you have a culture where physical and sexual abuse is absolutely rampant. Mm. And as thankful as I am truly for resources that the UN and other you know, charities bring in, um, I'm convinced that while we can meet certain physical needs and, and basic psychological needs, if we take Jesus out of the equation, uh, there's aspects of soul healing that, that are not going to happen. So um, that has really drawn us to devote as much as possible to creating resources and doing trainings for just some amazingly dear people that literally put their lives on the line daily uh, to go into traumatized areas and um, bring bring the hope of Christ and principles of healing. Um, wow. Wow. What, so in your experience, I mean, how has the experience and the work that you've done there transferred to the work that you do in the States? Is it the same kind of, you know, do you find, uh, you know, the same types of things happening within uh, churches? Is it something that doesn't happen at home? It only happens abroad. I mean, what has been your experience in navigating kind of that, the world of sexual abuse uh, at home? That's a, a great Great question. And we have a very robust ministry here in the U.S. So it's not that we're just just in Africa and we live here most of the year. But it's interesting, Kendra. At one level, abuse is abuse is abuse to the extent that I I don't care what culture you're in. Abuse is always about a misuse of of what I would call Imago Dei power Uh, by virtue of being image bearers. um, We have potency. You know, it's only humans that have the ability, for instance, to think abstractly and have language, um, which gives us ability to have dominion. I mean, right out of Genesis 1, 26 and 27, uh, only humans have dominion and, and, and potency that no other creature God's made has. So it doesn't matter whether you're in North America in a, you know, very wealthy suburb or whether you're in a village in the bush in Congo at subsistence level, abuse in any context will be about a a misuse of human power. Um, And biologically abuses, it it, it does the same damage and there's the same mechanism biologically Again, it doesn't matter if you're a person of color in the most remote region um, or a white like me in the suburbs. Biologically, when you're traumatized, the same kinds of things happen in your brain. And basically the same trauma effects kick in. So what we've, it's it's really, I am so thankful. What I initially learned in the U.S., I was able to take, to East Africa and to Congo. And obviously I've worked at learning Swahili, it's a different language. You've got all kinds of cultural things to learn and be sensitive to. Um, So yeah, you have to grapple with that. But in terms of just basic principles of what abuse is and what it does and what scripture has to say about it, it's pretty universal. So in terms of what I've learned there, um, I I, I think it's, it's, both ends of the spectrum um, in, Af- in Congo have really shaped my work here. One, I have more sobriety than I've ever had about the potential for humans 
in their depravity to do the most hideous things. Because I we see the worst of the worst, you know. The, we work with massacre survivors and torture survivors and all that um, stuff that gives you nightmares. So I have, though I've taught on these doctrines for years as a seminary teacher, it, it, it's different spending weeks on end with with people in those most extreme contexts. So I I have more. Yeah, sobriety is the best word I can think of for the reality of Satan and evil than I've ever had. And that's definitely shaped how I view abuse here. Um, I, while, while we don't tend to see the demonic in our culture overtly the way I do in Africa, Satan's alive and well um, in both cultures. So I'm certainly, from what I've learned there, I'm not surprised at what I see here. I'm, I'm more, I'm much quicker to, to just recognize, yeah, it's a fallen world. There's evil. You don't put anyone on a pedestal. Um, so, so that's one thing I've, you know, brought here to the states from Africa. I like what you just said, really quick. I just want to touch on it. You said you don't put anyone on a pedestal. And I think it's a very interesting choice of words, right? Because I think one of the things that women face when they uh, make an accusation and say, this happened to me, sometimes the leadership or people or whoever are put so high on a pedestal that people say, I, I can't believe that that could have happened. I was going to say, that's, that's an enormous problem for Christians. Um, we just don't want to think that this elder, this pastor could ever do something like that and that's a real mistake uh, when we do that and we do it intuitively it it's not like anyone has to teach us to to put people on a pedestal so to speak we we expect the best of our church leaders and that's not wrong but it it because they should there's qualifications for church leadership for sympathy three so yeah they they're, they should be exemplifying these wonderful traits of godliness. But if we think that just because that's the way it should be, that's the way it is, we're naive. And scripture bears that out every which way. Who would have thought that David, the king of Israel, who wrote scripture, who killed Goliath, would ever be capable of multiple murders and what some have called power rape of Bathsheba? You know, you just know that that couldn't happen. Well, actually it did. And David is hardly the only example in scripture of a godly leader with this amazing track record, if you will, of righteous behavior who, for whatever reason, um, fell into abusive behavior and abusive and very destructive behavior. So yeah, Africa's reinforced. that a little bit because there are some people who might not believe that you know what that David was seduced by Bathsheba um that that was not rape there might be some people listening to this for the first time thinking what like like I've always seen it as she was the seductress and he fell prey to her uh enchantress ways yeah um that's the very good the common historic way of, of understanding the David Bathsheba text. And for years, I referred to it as an affair. Um, 
I was wrong. <laughs> I do not say that anymore. You know, if any of our listeners at an academic level want to kind of see that unpacked a little bit, Flame of Yahweh by one of the Andrews professors is phenomenal. It's it's a Dr. Davidson has some 800 pages uh, expounding on sexuality, particularly in the Hebrew scriptures. He gives, and I forget, it's over 15 reasons that it's not an affair with David and Bathsheba. But just a few of the things I would note. Um, one, look at the context. David is the king. The king of Israel is the unquestioned monarch with, in, in that ancient Jewish context, almost unlimited power. When the king says, come, you come. You know, he, he literally had the power of life and death. And ultimately, we see him exercise that with Uriah and some of the other soldiers. So there's there's a power imbalance here. Uh, affairs, by, by definition, are with mutually consenting adults. And there's no there's no force or coercion. So how can it, how can it be an affair when one person has all the power and he tells soldiers to go or servants um, to go bring this woman? Like, it's not like Bathsheba had a choice. There, there's a, yeah, hideous power imbalance. Uh, number two, her bathing on the roof, that would have been socially customary. Um, that, that was not an act of seduction. They didn't have indoor plumbing. Um, so that's that, that would have been completely uh, normal and acceptable. Three, nowhere in the entire count, account in 2 Samuel do we read anything condemning Bathsheba. When Nathan the prophet comes and, and very skillfully and cleverly confronts David, nothing is said whatsoever about Bathsheba's sin. And you would certainly expect that if in fact that were the case, that Nathan the prophet would have called her into account, that there's nothing there or in any other biblical text that suggests that um, Bathsheba was responsible here, that, that it was mutual. And it's interesting when David finally comes to his senses and confesses, there's no, there's nothing about Bathsheba. It's I have sinned, Psalm 51, uh, against the Lord and done that which is evil in your sight. It's just, it's David. Um, so I think for, for those and about a dozen other reasons, um, this is not an affair. It's an abuse of power over someone that he was a, a vulnerable woman in his kingdom that he should have been protecting. And that's kind of the essence of um, spiritual abuse that then can get coupled with other kinds of abuse. Spiritual leaders not using the spiritual authority and position God's given them to protect and nurture, but rather to take advantage of. That's great. Oh, I, I love, you know, I love that perspective. I think I heard it for the first time, maybe like, I don't know, maybe like three or four years ago. And it was a woman who was retelling this story. And it was the first time I had ever really seen it from that paradigm. 
And it made so much sense to me because I think around that same time, I was like, Lord, why did Bathsheba carry the line? You know, like, wasn't Abigail a really great person? Like she has this, you know, uh, uh, incredible humility. And like, Mm -hmm. I was just wrestling with like, not really wrestling, but just curious to be like, oh, why was this person chosen? And then when I understood like this was a power rape, it totally made sense to me to be like, oh, of course, duh, right? Like the Lord is making up and as as far as it is possible for transgression and he's taking an evil situation and somehow trying to bring good out of it. And so, yeah. He does that. Thank, thankfully he does that. And I'm, I'm curious because I think, you know, in your experience as your work in the Congo, your work in the States, your work with uh, seminarians who are uh, going to be uh, coming into their pastoral leadership, uh, some of the fears that sometimes people have when a woman comes forward and says, I've been sexually assaulted or I've been raped. Um, the, the fear is that, well, she might be lying. Right. And maybe you can give some clarity about like, what's the statistics on you know, the probability that a woman would lie when she brings those types of things to a a pastoral leader or to a friend or to anybody. Yeah, that is so common. And I certainly grappled with that as a young pastor. And you have the, he said, she said, and I can't tell you how many times I've seen pastors when, when an allegation like that's brought forth, use that exact phrase. Well, this is a, he said, she said, I mean, I don't know. So maybe you were really raped. Maybe you weren't. I can't do anything about it. My hands are tied. Um, I know I'm an academic, so I I do really careful research. uh, Well, I analyze the research. And there are multiple studies. uh, I mean, police departments, FBI, et cetera. Very careful studies of rape, other forms of sexual abuse allegations to ascertain the the frequency of false allegations of of sexual abuse. And multiple studies, uh, and the most recent ones, pretty large scale, um, reveal that around 5%. I mean, you you can see some studies less, a few more, but the last couple um, average was just under 5%. Of, of sexual abuse allegations um, are found to be false. And of course, in, in many cases, there's, there's no way of, you know, there, there's not final you know, evidence one way or another, but of the ones where that can be ascertained, which says just over 95% of sexual abuse allegations are true, at least based on the research. So as a, as a Christian leader myself, I tell my students, you get an allegation, you you better start from the working hypothesis that there's every possibility that this actually happened. Now, you know, an allegation is just that. It doesn't mean you know for sure, but to to hear uh, an allegation and, and have this skeptical, well, she might be lying, um, that is just a wrong starting point is based on what we know from the social science research. And I also think it's a very wrong starting point biblically to the extent that scripture is so clear. We as church leaders are called one of our primary responsibilities 
is to protect the vulnerable. I mean, that's an element of being a shepherd. So I, I, should, I should hear these kind of um, allegations with a mindset toward, okay, what does protection mean here? And um, I want to do all I can to protect. And yes, there's due process and all that. I understand that. But I think we really need, and I, I work with my students to this end, to, to shift the paradigm from one of suspicion of women and children who bring out yeah, um, I, I work with my students to try to help them change from a position of suspicion. Well, maybe she's lying. Maybe this kid's making this up to, to one that's a, a position of advocacy, of protection. Mm. And, and we can pursue, you know, legal remedies to try to ascertain the, the specifics and validate stories, et cetera, while seeking to protect um, and pursuing advocacy. What are some like just practical steps? You know, if, if a member in the congregation says, hey, this happened to me, maybe it, it was with a member in the church, maybe it happened outside of the church, what would be your recommendations for what are some of the first steps that a person can take in providing that advocacy? Yeah, okay, say I'm, I'll put it in a couple of categories. Say I'm the pastor or one of the pastors, and the allegation is with one of the church leaders. And I, I, this is the way I've, I wrote the last child protection, child protection policy um, for my, the last church I pastored in. Um, I think we, if it's a pastor, we put him on a paid leave of absence or and or depending on his area of ministry completely remove him from ministry to say it's say it's the youth pastor then we completely remove him from work with minors whatsoever um and and then let law enforcement or whoever you know do, do the investigation um and there's a way to do that so that if you do it wisely and carefully you're not saying you know he's guilty, but that's such a serious allegation that um, that that's one thing that I recommend churches do, that they build that right into their policy. Um, and we see that certainly in the secular world, schools and others, um, putting that in policies. Um, most certainly churches need to, if it's a minor, um, they need to cooperate with law enforcement, child protective services. I mean, that that's on the immediate list. Church leaders are mandated in virtually all states. Um, they're, they're mandated reporters. In other words, um, they're listed um, as those who have to report allegations of child abuse of any kind. So yeah. we have a moral and a legal obligation um, so certainly that needs to be there. Um, what do you do? In I think it's really important though? for. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but, and this is just a follow up. I'm sorry. Like, what do you do in a situation though where you don't have enough evidence to criminally prosecute, right? So, like, they they brought up this evidence. I mean, especially in rape cases, unless the person got a rape kit done after this happened, and then they could match the DNA. So many cases go unsolved or unprosecuted. So in 
in a situation where there's not enough criminal evidence to bring a charge against him, is there something the church can do? And, and have you been in that situation before? Yeah, any of us who work in the field of abuse have encountered that all too many times where, yeah, there's, there's not the closure, if you will, there's not the final proof. Um, and you just have to be able to, to deal with that. Again, I work from the let's do all we can to support and protect perspective. Um, you know, Celeste and my wife in all of her years working with trauma survivors uh, learned, of course, so, so much. And one of the things that she often said was, and she, if she were part of this conversation, she would pass this on. She would say, you know, even apart from all the other things, look at what you're seeing in front of you. That's not to say that that's foolproof, but, you know, I as a male, and Kendra, you met me, I'm, I'm a pretty decent sized male. Um, I, I don't go around in life experiencing physical or sexual threat very often, almost never. But I'm not, I'm not part of the, those, the category of people who are vulnerable. Um, so it's easy for me as a male church leader to maybe minimize what someone's experienced and how that's affected them. So Celeste would say to church leaders, look at what you're seeing. Are you seeing the effects of trauma in, in front of you? Um, is, is this woman reporting high levels of fear and anxiety? And, and you're seeing that in her. Um, you know, be really careful of being the judge of her story. And she's saying this happened and here's what I'm experiencing. As a male leader, be careful of looking at that and, and just drawing a conclusion that she's exaggerating. Listen carefully to what you're hearing and being told. Look at what you see and hear in front of you and be really careful to pass judgment on someone who's probably a lot more vulnerable than you and what they're reporting and evidencing. And even if you're not certain of the specifics of what happened. And, and yes, there can be false reports. Poor, poor Joseph was a recipient of a false allegation. Um, but one thing that we wanna be pre absolutely prepared to do is offer some resources to abuse survivors. So um, have some, some books, some articles. Um, that's why our nonprofit Many in the Soul exist is to provide resources, some in book form that, that have a nominal cost, a whole lot of articles and short things that are downloadable free from the website, links to other websites, other resources. Um, so I'd certainly offer that, mendingthesoul.org. Um, there are some thankfully good resources now that are you know biblically integrated. Um, so church leaders need to be aware of some good resources they can give to people who come and say, I've experienced this, and also be aware of some of the community resources, um, whether it's a family advocacy center, and most major urban centers have those now. Um, and usually all the services are free of charge from counseling to getting order protection to all kinds of things. Um, and obviously professional referrals that they can make to Christian counselors who have, have abuse training experience that could, could help as well. So having those ready 
I don't have to know, for instance, the, whether the, every aspect of this woman's account is factually true. It's what she's reporting. Okay, I can offer these resources that, that could help her. And speaking on that, like say, for example, somebody comes and they're just talking about an experience that happened with them. Maybe it's current. Maybe it's something that happened in the past. Maybe it's with a member. Maybe it's not. You know, what are some of the responses that leadership or even just a friend can take? Because often what happens is even if it's not outright disbelief, sometimes the responses that clergy or people in power or people that are you know, looked at to be trusted, uh, the responses that they give can sometimes perpetuate damage and trauma. And so what do you do? What are some advice that you can give so that we don't perpetuate trauma in those situations? Yeah. Um, Well, you know, this is really simple, Kendra, but I encourage my students, my particularly my male students, I have men and women, but particularly my male students heading toward the pastorate, open your ears and listen. Just listen to the voices of survivors. Um, And and I'll illustrate from my own church. Uh, We've moved to Portland, but we were lived here here for years in Phoenix. uh, And our home church had had a horrific incident um, of a church leader sexually abusing several of the girls and you now you can imagine the ripples from that the perp was incarcerated but just all kinds of damage and one of those so new pastor came in a couple years later and one of the victims now an adult went to him and said i i, I really would like for you to know some of my story you're my pastor and it was his first pastorate and he didn't even know what to say. He was just absolutely dumbfounded at this horrible abuse story. And he's young, but he had, he had the good sense. And I think it just showed maturity on, on his part to, to, to say, I don't really understand abuse, but I'm gonna do my best to start learning. And I just want you to know as your shepherd, I want to hear from you what you need from us as church leaders and what I can offer you as your pastor. I don't know what you've been through. I'm so sorry, but would you be willing to to coach me here? I'm going to do my part. I'm going to do my research. I'm not putting this all on you, but you're in my flock and I care about you. So if you could even just create a short list of things for me to consider, I will really take that seriously. So, so listening will go really far in uh, not not saying the wrong thing. But you know, if you you've not had these experiences, and if you're especially if you were blessed to grow up in a loving Christian family, lots of people aren't, but certainly some of our pastors and, and other church leaders are. Apart from listening to voices, either live voices or you know through people's stories in print, how are you going to know? So I think that's a really uh, important starting place. What I really like about what you just said, and I'm sorry, uh, I'll let you finish that up, but is that you're asking someone to say, what can I be for you? You How can I help you? 
and teach me how to be the support that you need. And I think that's a great, even just relationship skill. Absolutely. Like, what can I be? How can I be here for you in this moment and teach me so that I can be a better support? Like, that's a, a beautiful sentiment. Yeah. And I do think there's a challenge for us as male leaders. And maybe this is just part of part of being male. We like to give the answers. <laughs> Sometimes that makes it hard for us to listen to our wives. It's like, well, if you tell me your problem, I want to help you fix it. And sometimes our wives and certainly abuse survivors, they're they're not necessarily wanting or expecting us to fix it, but they want compassionate listening and understanding. And it's really important for male church leaders to to just understand that listening is 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 doing something and something really significant and you won't even know what the action steps are until you've listened wow yeah no that's really good you were you were saying something and i think i interrupted you one of the most common ways church leaders hurtfully respond when um, a survivor comes forward um, and shares part of their story is to minimize. That is so incredibly destructive. And I've certainly, I could tell multiple stories of survivors just clamming up and things getting so much worse and that, that can really be traumatic. So Again, that's where the listening is is so phenomenally important. Um, we don't want to minimize what they've experienced. Just you know, listen, validate what you can. Um, I, I think it's just, and, and not just church leaders do this. I think it, it's it, it's so common that, that we we hear of a painful story and we want to jump in with uh, whether it's Romans eight twenty eight or well have you thought of trying this medication because my aunt took it and she was healed of cancer you know whatever we want we want these quick kind of solutions because we just see someone in pain well that's that's a good motive but that that can end up being really destructive because whether it's cancer or rape, someone's experienced something horrific that's really wounded them physically or psychologically. We must not minimize what they've experienced. Just two days ago, a woman shared with me, um, she, she was a pastor's wife for years and was in a horrifically abusive marriage in in basically every category of abuse horrifically abusive and she shared just a little little of that with with a few of the other church leaders and and the response she got was well all couples have conflict all couples have problems like you know that that's just how it is and of course she just clammed up and she was living with life threatening destructive behaviors and, and I'm I'm sure they they meant well but that's a very common in one way or another we can uh, minimize or, or, or the classic well what were you wearing uh, what did you do that made him so mad uh, we have just told the victim it's your fault well I don't care what she was wearing that, that's a separate discussion 
her modesty or immodesty. That's, that's completely separate from this discussion. There's no excuse. Um, same thing with, well, what did you say that made him so mad that he hit you? It's irrelevant. We may talk later about the relational dynamics, but you know, in, in terms of that discussion that, that they brought forward a, um, a disclosure, yeah, we want to be really, really careful of minimizing, let alone shifting blame, because that's going to put a layer of shame um, reinforce shame that's probably already there, toxic shame that's not theirs to carry. And we've just reinforced that in really destructive ways. Wow. Wow. I, I think that, you know, you're bringing up a lot of great points. And I think it's a, a question that the church is now having to really wrestle with because we've kind of had this cultural moment, right? When the Me Too movement happened, you know, you had the Harvey Weinstein. I mean, you have R. Kelly. You have all of these women who are now coming out and speaking about these very powerful figures and a lot of women, you know, finding the courage in that to now tell their story. And what has been the Me Too movement's impact upon the church? And have we met the moment in the culture? Uh, have, have we really created that, I don't know, that safe space or the type of cultural atmosphere that says, we want to hear your story. We want to be a part of the solution. <laughs> Boy, it's a good question. I'm, I thank the Lord for the Me Too movement. I really do. And, and you know, you've, you, I've written on it. Um, we needed it, sadly, because there was so much as a society that had been swept under the rug. And the Me Too movement has forced us, and, and it's, of course, been in multiple, virtually every sector of society from hip hop to entertainment to industry to you know fill in the blank um so it's definite and then you throw in lawsuits that go with that um appropriately so um in in most instances and that's forced us as a society to just basically acknowledge that abuse does happen more frequently than than we realized, and we can't keep sweeping this stuff under the rug. We've done it for years as a society. Harvey Weinstein is, or excuse me, um, he is as well, but Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, oh my goodness, if any of our listeners have watched that series on Netflix, it's just, it's absolutely bone chilling. The extent for years to which uh, this man preyed on underage girls sexually and and the collusions of politicians and media personalities etc were, were part of that so me too has helped us come to grips with the fact that this is happening it's wrong it must stop having said that i do think there's some real um, abuse fatigue for lack of a better phrase and i think there has been a fair amount of pushback um, yeah, I think there's been quite a bit of pushback. And so I think it's it's a mixed bag. Um, yeah, it's a yeah, mixed bag. Yeah. When it comes to like helping people who are, you know, maybe this is something that doesn't touch their life. Like you said, you know, maybe there are a lot of big, strong men listening and they can't empathize. Uh, what are some of the psychological impacts of sexual abuse? You know, that we can, as a church, say, we really want to minister to this population. You know, when we look at the church and we say, 
you know, this is a service organization. This is a ministry organization. We are here to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Well, what is it that we're actually healing or, or what are we trying to address that a, a, a survivor might be dealing with and what are some of the, the trauma that they might deal with? Yeah. Um, any kind of abuse can alter brain chemistry, um, the, the more basic functioning parts of our brain that, that control our, you know, breathing, respirate, uh, heart rate, basic functions that, that we don't control. It's just our auto, autonomic um, are, are altered when we're, when we experience life threats. And so things get encoded and God just made us this way so that, um, and, and it's part of survival. You know, when we experience a life-threatening event, um, we don't tell our heart to start beating faster. We don't tell our adrenals and pituitary glands, hey, I'm going to need some energy here. Please please kick in. Um, it all just happens almost instantly. We hear a loud noise. All of a sudden, our heart's racing. Our muscles are contracting. There's multiple things uh, that are happening uh, neurologically, and I, I'm so thankful God's made us that way. The problem is when we experience a life threat, it can uh, sometimes in a little bit of time, you know, the, the nervous system kind of calms back down to a, a normal functioning. In other cases, it doesn't, um, particularly with overwhelming trauma. And there's a lot of reasons why some people experience more long-term effects than others. But uh, for many, it's as if the brain stays on hyper alert and is perceiving danger when it's not really there, but particularly when there's some sensory data that reminds uh, the survival part of our brain, it may be a smell, a sound, a sight that, that is somehow reminds that part of the brain of the danger that happened when, when this woman was raped. And so if she has a smell and, and that part of the brain kicks in and is basically that, that alarm system is, is inappropriately saying danger. And all of a sudden she's having panic attacks and increased heart rates and other things and that can make you feel like you're going crazy. So there's, in terms of, of some of the effects you have um, neurological in terms of hyper arousal, um, Sleep disruption is really, really huge. Nightmares, um, all kinds of relational effects, and those are pretty intuitive. Um, you know, a, a fear of the opposite sex, of the opposite sex who, who raped. Um, here's what's not so intuitive with, with sexual abuse. It's not uncommon that sexual abuse survivors in, in a in a way they do not understand, try to regain a sense of power because abuse creates powerlessness. Power is used against us and we can't stop it. Um, so in, in a very counterintuitive way, we often see uh, rape survivors who end, end up becoming hypersexual, promiscuous. And, it, and that makes no sense because it's like, wait a minute, it was sex that was used against you. So that should be the last thing you'd want. Um, but I, I have learned that from our work and anyone who works in this field sees that. Um, that again, it's a subconscious attempt to regain power and, and shame plays into that as well. Sometimes there's this 
um, sad thinking of, well, this is just all I am. I'm, I'm a horse. I might as well act like one. Um, and you just hear the, you know, the lies of Satan. So, so we can see those kinds of things sexually. Um, depression is a really common, and that's also a function of brain chemistry, super common uh, effect of sexual abuse. Um, th those would be some of the more common things that we see. Wow. Thank you for that. What are some of the just, uh, and, and this will kind of be the last question that I, I talk about when it comes to the sexual abuse, and then we can move on to domestic violence. You know, what are some of the most common misconceptions that we as a church or church leaders or whoever might have about um, sexual abuse? And, you know, how can we begin to correct that? Yeah. Um, we know from some pretty good research done with church leaders that we're still, for both sexual abuse and domestic violence, that we're, we're still struggling as church leaders to recognize how prevalent it is. Uh, it, it appears that church leaders, much more so than a few decades ago, realized that sexual abuse and, and physical abuse um, happen, um, but there's still a misconception that it happens in our congregations with pretty similar frequent, frequency as to the secular world. That is still a common misconception. Wish it weren't so, but you know, it, it happens. That's a misconception um, that it doesn't happen that often in our congregations. Um, that would be probably one of the, one of the biggest misconceptions. Certainly the, the, the issue of when it's a, a church leader, um, I think a, a common misconception is that if a church leader has sexual relations with a parishioner, well, that's just an affair. Um, I would really contest that. In some cases it may be, but I think if there's a, there's a built-in spiritual power imbalance, when I am the pastor, I've been entrusted with spiritual power. So that's not, I, I'm not going to say that, that uh, say a woman who has a sexual relationship with her pastor has no moral culpability. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying it's a misconception for us to look at that as a straightforward affair when a, there's a power imbalance. So I think pastor is absolutely more responsible and we need to treat it as such. Uh, and we also need to recognize the prisoner's vulnerability. Often, often these sexual misconduct situations arise in pastoral counseling. Well, why does a woman come to her pastor for counseling? probably because she's hurting. There's some areas of woundedness and vulnerability and he's be the shepherd, the caretaker. Jeremiah 23 talks about the shepherds of Israel who fed on the sheep. And, you know, think of, think of that imagery. Uh, instead of feeding the sheep, shepherds are feeding on the sheep. And, and that, I think that imagery helps us kind of, reframe this misconception um, that it's just an affair. Oh, wait a minute, if he's the shepherd, uh, no, that's, that's a really, really huge kind of abuse of power. So those would be a couple of misconceptions that are pretty common. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciate that. And one thing, you know, and maybe you can talk to this from a theological perspective, 
I think I look at the Bible and I don't see a lot of positive narrations about women, right? Uh, the Bible was, you know, grew up in a secular, sorry, grew up in a patriarchal culture um, in that sense. Like it was, it was written in those times. And so of course there might be a little bit of that bent. You have Solomon saying, you know, i you know, among one righteous man, there are no women, right? Uh, like you have these statements, you know, you see the whore of Babylon, right? Uh, she's riding yeah. the dragon and in the red dress. And I wonder, you know, what's been your experience about uh, women have come to you or maybe in your research, like the imaging of the Bible and women, right? Like, I feel like, you know, has that in any way contributed to maybe lessening a sense of taking women seriously or, or less or increasing a sense of misogyny or uh, patriarchy and how, how is that really what God is not really about? Right. Like, <laughs> I, I, you know, like See, we have, we have now until Thanksgiving and we'll unpack this <laughs> huge topic, but a valid question. Um, you sound like my seminary students asking really good questions. Um, yeah, a couple things. I'm, I mean, one, it's uh, that you were actually alluding to something that's not in, in the Bible, but some of the ancient Jewish literature uh, as far as, uh, yeah, I don't have it memorized. But basically, this, this discrepancy is saying that there are basically hardly any righteous women. Um, that idea is actually not in scripture, but it was a very common one in the ancient Near Eastern world, and it's sadly well attested. Um, we certainly don't have time to get into the complexity of this. It's a very appropriate, important topic. But just a couple things I could I could say quickly. Um, yes, the Bible was written in a patriarchal world, and there's various things, be it slavery, polygamy, that are practiced but that doesn't mean that scripture is putting its sanction on it um i mean we we have to go back to genesis 1 and 2 to see what god intended and i think it's really important um, to recognize that in scripture scripture is a is a trustworthy accurate account of, of what happened but again that doesn't mean everything that's recorded there was what god intended so you have polygamy, you have all kinds of unfortunate things. But in Genesis 1 and 2, we see equality, we see mutuality, uh, we see just incredible, um, you know, respect. So that's that needs to be our, our baseline. Secondly, yes, you do have household codes, as the New Testament ethicists call them, um, that talk about order and families and uh, male headship and submission and children submitting etc um, and we don't have time to get into those issues i've written extensively on them but but a couple things i i would note um one scripture does offer including in the old testament numerous ways of protecting women in a patriarchal world for instance, in Deuteronomy 24, in a patriarchal world where a woman would have virtually no means of livelihood, God makes provision and commands, you can't just divorce your wife. 
I mean, you can't just abandon her. If, if you're going to divorce her, you have to give her a written certificate of divorce. That kind of escapes us. Like, how is that helping women? Well, because that then allowed her to be able to remarry. Because again, in that world, she'd have very little means of, of livelihood. And um, God wrote into Mosaic Law that if you divorce your wife, marry someone else, decide, you know what, I, on second thought, I think I like girl number one better after all. You can't, you can't do that. So it kind of builds in this uh, sobriety of marriage and not allowing men to just play fast and loose with their marital vows. So in that culture, you have various laws like that that, that do build in protection. Um, in terms of the New Testament, yes, you have household codes that, that, that talk about uh, headship and submission, but Paul is very careful in Ephesians 5 to put it in a context of, okay, yeah, husbands are the head. And here's, what does that mean? It means he's to be like Jesus. He is to love as Jesus. Jesus sacrificed. He gave his life for the church. He's, he's to tenderly nourish and care for and sacrifice for. Um, I, I am just astounded at how often abusive men will use the Ephesians 5, you have to submit, I'm the head, in, a, in an abusive context. Um, and as a pastoral counsel, I say, you knucklehead, in so many words. Yeah, let's go to that text. Um, that text is about sacrifice. So I would say that. And I'd also say there's uh, a lot of mutuality texts that, that get overlooked. Even in the Ephesians 5, it begins this section on family life and some would call it roles, it begins in verse 21 with submitting one to another. You look in, in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5, and it's talking about sexual intimacy and in marriage. Uh, and this is another one I often see abusive men misusing. You, you have to have sex with me because I'm your husband, and that's, you know, that's your obligation, blah, blah, blah. Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5 says, he gives absolute uh, mutuality. He says the husband does not have sexual authority over his own body, but the wife has it, and then vice versa. So it's it's a mutuality. Um, those, those texts need to, need to be listened to really carefully. And if we just take one, we can end up with a scenario that looks uh, destructively patriarchal, but I think we have to take them together. I could add to that, but I think that's the general tenor I'd want to emphasize. That's good. Is there anything else that you want to add as we kind of wrap up this section on looking at sexual abuse in the scripture and the relationship uh, of survivors in the church? Yeah, the last thing I would add is this, and this even goes back to earlier you asked about lessons I've learned in the Congo that I bring here. Um, and because we have the privilege, and it is a privilege, of seeing the worst of the worst, I can with boldness say there is no evil that, or, or abuse or suffering that God doesn't have the power to redeem. And I want to apply that here to sexual abuse. Sexual abuse is hideous. I know personally how hideous it is. Um, but I just think of the genealogy in Matthew 
we don't normally think of genealogies as being anything but boring, but there's five women mentioned in that genealogy uh, of Jesus, which goes against Jewish custom, by the way. That's not how it, how it worked. Um, scripture is, if I had time, I'd love to talk about how women affirming um, scripture is, but that's one of the things we see there. But these five women all are have scandal in their lives. You know, the last one being, of course, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the scandal is that she's pregnant and unmarried. Um, but here we have Bathsheba. We have Tamar, the prostitute, the Canaanite prostitute, um, etc. And yet. God providentially weaves these women, most of whom have sexual scandal, um, actually all of them, um, sexual scandal in their stories. God chose to put them in the line of the Messiah. Mm -hmm. So if that doesn't shout to us, regardless of what you've experienced, as sad as it may be in terms of sexual victimization, God is not done with you. God specializes. I mean, he grieves over abuse that we experience. He hates it infinitely more than we can imagine. But he delights in redeeming that for good. And when we're in the middle of the pain, that seems like just a fairy tale. I get that. But that genealogy shouts that to me, and I've seen it lived out. I hope this conversation has been healing for your own journey of faith. And hopefully we have supplied some resources to begin helping your church open up about these conversations and navigate a journey towards healing. Create spaces for people to share their trauma and be a part of the healing work of Christ. If you're not already following us on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, be sure to do so at Next. You can follow me at Kendra Arsenault with an X. I enjoyed my time with you all. Please stay tuned for next week.